It's good to be together in God's presence. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, one of the best known sayings of Jesus is to love your neighbor as? There you go. You guys got it? We can, after the song, you guys got it? We can just, that's kind of it. Uh, so this was well known, even in Jesus' day. So well known that one young man approached Jesus once and he wanted to get a more technical. He wanted to know, well, just what exactly did you mean? He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In this series called Bless, uh, we're trying to attempt to answer these questions. How do we really love our neighbors? And we're just trying to make it not that complicated. We're trying to start with our actual neighbors, the people we live near, the folks that are in our sphere of influence and contact on a day-to-day basis. So in the Bless series, it's by uh, the book, the series was inspired by the book of the same name by pastors Dave and John Ferguson, and each letter stands for something, B-L-E-S-S. And so several weeks ago, we started about beginning with prayer, and we want to be going to God and asking God for instructions and guidance on who we can bless that's in our vicinity. And then the second week, we talked about listening, that it's important to communicate people's value to them, not just by assuming you know what they need or assuming you know everything about their story, but showing them value by listening to them, maybe even around a table as you eat together. Pastor Mitch talked about last week uh, how a meal can convey so much more than nutrition. And so this week is about serving. Jesus is going to set an explicit example for us and instruct us specifically on what to do. And so what I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word is that serving is a double blessing. Serving is a double blessing. Having neighbors, being a neighbor, it's not always an easy thing. I don't know if you have any neighbor horror stories, how they compare with this one. Mm, Some of you are like, "Mm, yes, I love this series. Uh, In 2017, a Florida couple, their neighbor took them to a Tampa Bay Bucks game. Isn't that nice? Except their neighbor paid for the tickets with the neighbor's credit card information that they stole. <laughs> That's pretty cold. Hey, you want to go to an NFL game? It's on you. You just don't know it. Like, oh, man, that, that is rough. Uh, being neighbors can be complicated for a lot of reasons because we're in close proximity. We're a permanent fixture, it seems, in each other's lives. And you, you, we can both be annoying and be annoyed. Now, I have bad news for you. If you don't have any bad neighbor stories, you may be the bad neighbor. So you're going to want to watch that. Uh, but it seems like it's harder and harder to get to know our neighbors. You know, it's just kind of a, can be a suspicious or just odd thing. And it's not getting any easier. Technology has, has impacted our ability to know our neighbors. It started with the automobile, and then really what had a huge impact on neighborhoods is the structure we designed to keep our automobiles in, the garage. This is an article from Michigan State called How Attached Garages Change Traditional Neighborhoods. See, at one point in American history, the front porch was a main fixture of the house. Anybody got a nice porch at their, at their crib? Like two. Okay, you're proving my point. Very good. That's just what I wanted. Uh, it's, the, the porch was originally large enough to fit some furniture and several people. It was, it was a space to hang out in. Originally, the front of the house, this is from the article, was a porch designed as a gathering place for people and a point of interaction on the sidewalk. The porch was the anchor of neighborhood activities. Porches kind of reached their peak, their, their largest and, and most common build around the, the turn of the 20th century. 
And then not long after that, a couple things happened. The automobile was invented. And so we'd started designing streets differently to accommodate automobiles. Then we needed a place for these things. And so housing started to change as we made the garage a key feature of your home. Now, some of us keep our cars in our garage and some of us keep all of our other cool stuff in the garage. Uh, So that continues to change. And the other thing that happens in, well, I don't know, around the 40s or so is air conditioning. So think about what you do when you come to your house. You pull in the driveway, you hit the garage door opener, it opens up, and you go into your nice cool house. It used to be that it was cooler outside than it was in your house, so neighbors would see each other on their porches, but we don't do that anymore. And so if we have the opportunity to interact with our neighbors, sometimes we can kind of be like, ugh, I'd rather just skip it. We wanna keep them at arm's length. I just wanna open my garage, do my thing. But Jesus didn't do ministry at an arm's length. He did ministry up close. One of the features of Jesus' ministry is that he was in close proximity to people. So how can we not just retreat into our air-conditioned liftmaster fortresses and how do we actually do what Jesus commanded us? How do we follow the example he will set today? Let's find out. In our scripture, Jesus is having some of the final conversations with his disciples before the end of his time on earth as an incarnated person, before his betrayal and his execution on the cross. Now, a lot of his teachings have shocked the religious establishment. Mitch talked about that last week, that the Pharisees, kind of the religious power group, criticized Jesus for who he kept company with. Why does your teacher eat with such scum, with tax collectors and sinners? So they're on sort of the outside critical circle of Jesus, This week, his inner circle is going to be shocked by what he tells them and what he does. We'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 13. Uh, John is one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called gospels uh, because that's a word that means good news, and that's what they contain, the good news of Jesus' life and teachings and death and resurrection. Now, three out of those four gospels are referred to as the synoptic gospels. Think like synonym. They have a very similar structure and a lot of the stories they include, a lot of the same content. John is kind of the outlier from the synoptic gospels. He comes, uh, the author does, he comes to the story of Jesus kind of with a different angle, a different bent. And a lot of people have asked me over the years, you know, Adam, uh, I wanna start reading the Bible. Where should I start? I think the book of John is a great answer. And so hear the good news of God's word. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew his time on earth was, as, a, as an incarnated person was coming to a close. I don't know if you've ever been on a trip visiting with some friends and you kind of save your big night for the last night. Maybe you go out somewhere uh, a little more gut-wrenchingly. Maybe you've had a loved one who you've known is ill. And anybody who's experienced that, you know you have limited time left, those final conversations are precious. Precious time. And so this is what Jesus does with that precious closing time with his disciples. This is how he spends it. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now there's a practical aspect and a symbolic aspect of what Jesus is doing, and we'll look at both of these. Pastor and scholar Tokenbo Adeyomo gives us some helpful context. Jewish men usually wore an inner tunic, an outer tunic or robe, 
and an outer garment or cloak. They normally removed the cloak when indoors, but kept the outer tunic on. What Jesus did was remove his outer tunic and strip down to his inner tunic. Then he wrapped a towel around his waist. Dressed in this way, Jesus looked exactly like a slave, for this was standard dress for a slave. I've tried to wrap my mind around the complete shock that the disciples would have had. I don't know if your company has a CEO or something, but imagine you're at Quick Trip and your CEO pops up with that little squeegee, I'm not sure if anybody ever really uses, and starts washing your windows. I mean, would you be like, whoa, whoa, what are you, what are you doing? Is this, is this a joke? I've tried to think through what a modern equivalent might be for the, the dirty, gross job that it was to wash people's feet. And I think the closest equivalent is whoever unclogs the toilet at your house. <laughs> All right, is, is anybody ever excited to do that? Toilet's clogged? Yeah! I mean, that's more plunger talk than you thought you were gonna get at church. We'll, we'll stop there. But this is the job Jesus chooses to opt into. When you entered a room in the first century, there would be a basin full of water. And if you were fancy, there'd be a servant there to, to do this duty. But the disciples, they're, they're balling on a budget. They, they don't have staff. They don't have headquarters. They don't have people for that. And so imagine the awkwardness when they come into the room and it's kind of like, all right, who wants to be on foot patrol? Right, and, and no, no one wants to do the lower thing. And that's the moment that Jesus steps in and does this. Work that would have been beneath him in the eyes of society. This is a very gross job. People traveled everywhere on foot, dusty streets when it rained, would have been mud everywhere. And their footwear was, was a thin leather sole with some straps onto it. The washing of feet was reserved for the lowest in society. Now in the Gospel of Luke, when, when recording this episode, Jesus' final hours with the disciples, we read this. They began to argue, the disciples did, among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Maybe Jesus' washing of their feet was in response to their little argument. Hard to say. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Now at this point, I was, I was thinking about messing with you guys and being like, okay, so I want you to look down the row and take off your shoes and socks and we're gonna prep, but decided to skip that. Jesus' act of washing his disciples' feet, it perfectly captures his counterintuitive style. He's supposed to be the master getting his feet washed, not the other way around. That doesn't make sense. And so if Jesus is willing to take the low position, then surely everyone else should too. And so friends, if we think that being a Christian somehow makes us entitled to certain things or rights, or that somehow we're put on a fast track because we believe in Jesus, a fast track to an easier life, then we would do well to remember John 13. Now, I, I, I love a good rant, and I make a, con a concentrated effort not to do that often on Sundays. But when I'm picking on my own kind, I get to get into it a little bit. I think the most ironic thing in the world is the reserved parking spot for the pastor sign. <laughs> do you get it? <laughs> like, hello? So anyway, that's, that's, that was just for me. Uh, Jesus took the lowest 
grossest, most non-desirable duty. Verses 15 and 16. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I love how Jesus really drives the point home. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. I don't know about you, but I need a good reminder from time to time. I was working at a church in St. Louis and we were hosting this conference uh, via video. We were one of the satellite venues. So we had about 700 people rolling through our church for two days in a row. And as a staff person, you were just on call, on deck for whatever, whatever needed to be done. And I remember walking into the bathroom and just from tons of people being in there, there was water uh, on the sink and there was a ton of water on the floor. So I thought, oh, we gotta clean this up. And so I remember grabbing some paper towels and I got down on my hands and knees and started cleaning up the water on the floor. And I had a sinister thought in that moment. I really hope someone walks in and sees me doing this. (laughs) Didn't get it. I couldn't wait for someone to see how humble I was. Still trying to get it. Jesus set an example of what true humility is, what being a servant means. As he did, we should too. And I imagine the jaws of his disciples were just on the floor as he concluded, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Here's another counterintuitive thing. When you endeavor to bless somebody else, you end up getting the blessing as well. Funny how that works. Serving is a double blessing. Man, some of the most impactful times in my life, uh, growing up as a student and then as an adult, were going on these mission trips. And I remember kids in my youth group would work at Steak and Shake all year long to be able to go on our mission trip in the summer. Normally, when you go to work somewhere, you get paid. That's the point. This was the opposite. They were paying to go work and they couldn't wait to do it. That's the double blessing. Talk to anybody who's been on a mission trip and they'll probably tell you, no, I got way more than I gave. How does that work? Talk to anybody who's caring for a loved one who's ill. Now, that's not to say it's easy. But especially in retrospect, most people I know wouldn't have it any other way. How is it that folks gain more than they give when they serve? This is part of the miraculous mystery of God. It doesn't add up, doesn't make sense. The miraculous mystery of God. Jesus wants us to know that when we serve, we will be blessed in doing so even as we bless other people. My family is certainly blessed to be in the neighborhood we're in. Uh, We have dear friends and neighbors down the street uh, who take our little girl from joyful noise to her full-time care every day. We couldn't do it without them. Uh, There's no greater compliment you can give somebody than trusting them with your baby. Now we try to get them a little La Fuente card every once in a while, Uh, but it just means a ton to us to have people we can trust. Uh, our neighbors directly next door to us. Last week, about 10 p.m., I get a little text. Hey, your garage door's open. A lot of garage door content today. I think we're good for the year on that. But I mean, how kind is that? Just looking out for us. 
There's a great line from the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? It says this, a neighborhood was a place where at times where you felt worried, scared, unsafe, would take care of you. One day I got a call from the bus barn here in town and my son's bus driver, Miss Tara, had seen Aaron uh, outside across the street. She knew where our house was and she saw, she went on her route, she saw him outside by himself. Now what she didn't know was that he had come home and that I was home and that I gave him permission to go to our neighbor's house and play and that they would let him in shortly. She didn't know any of that. All she saw was our first grader at the time all by himself. And she called her, she called headquarters to make sure he was okay. This may seem like not a big deal. This was like, I I have trouble discussing it, honestly. I was so touched because she was looking out for my boy. Man, any parent knows when someone treats your kid well, you will love them forever. I love Miss Tara. Love her. And so we got folks down the street, next door, driving the bus, looking out for us. That's a good place to be. I love that Jesus calls us to be good neighbors, metaphorically and literally. And I have experienced this. I've experienced it, and that makes me want to turn around and be a good neighbor for others. In Jesus' name. See, that's the thing. This, this series ain't about, you know, trying to win the kindness award at school or whatever. It's, it's, it's not about uh, just doing stuff out of obligation. Just, or, or it's definitely not only doing the stuff when we feel like it. We need to be good neighbors in order that people would experience the tangible love of Jesus Christ. To bless others by serving them in Jesus' name so that they would know they're not on their own. To let them know the world is not just a random collision of particles. To let them know that people are for them. To give them hope that society isn't going down the tubes. To give them hope in a more excellent way, the way of Jesus, the way of humble, loving service. That's why it's important we get the sequence right. That we begin with prayer, that we listen, that we share time eating around the dinner table and understanding how we can serve them. But friends, there's two S's in bless, not one. And next week, we'll talk about what it means to share our story. I can can sense it. Next week, we'll look at that. But for this week, I have a counterintuitive invitation for you. See, I understand that even broaching the subject of religion or faith or Jesus can be, I mean, people just lock up. I've said this before, I almost hesitate to let people know I'm a pastor because one of two things happens. They apologize for cursing a couple minutes ago or they immediately tell me how long it's been since they've been to church and why. As if I've got like a spreadsheet. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm out here keeping track of folks. So I understand the deal, I do. But what if one of the ways to serve our neighbors was to give them a chance to experience this double blessing. See, if you, how can I serve you today? I mean, that, 
And, and I get it, friends. I, I got called church boy my whole life. I know. I know people think some of this stuff is corny. What if you offer them an invitation to help somebody? Now, if they think helping somebody's corny, that's on them. Okay? Quick mini rant, and people will be like, oh, you believe a dead person rose to life? <laughs> okay. And then they'll, like, read their horoscope. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it alone. Why I write stuff down? Okay. Let's bring it back. Madeline LaAngle said this We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Now, the famous saying is preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words. Next week, we'll talk about some words being involved, the words of your story. But for now, what if we invited people as a way of blessing them to give them the opportunity to bless others? We got a bunch of stuff out in the lobby that's designed exactly to do just that. Everything from a monetary donation to uh, collecting supplies. Uh, my girl, Dorisa, just put something out. We partnered with the Kearney School District on, on uh, providing kids with shoes. We got four or five options out there that you can jump onto and, and be proud to offer your neighbors a chance to bless somebody and for them to experience the truth that Jesus tells us today. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So friends, what invitation could you offer to shed a little light and bless someone with the chance to serve? And everybody said, amen. amen.